0: we're in the book of Joshua. We've been in the book of Joshua. This is part 14 of our Joshua sermon series. One of the things about Lynchburg City Church a lot different than a lot of other churches is I'm a huge fan of expository verse-by-verse preaching. That's why this is the 14th sermon in the book of Joshua. Okay? And so I realize many of you maybe are here and you've missed the first... 13 parts. So I'm going to give you a brief summary of what's led up to this point. Moses, he's dead. The only leader the people of Israel have ever had, he's gone. That's kind of how the story ends in Deuteronomy. It's how the story picks up in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua is their leader. Talk about trying to fill big shoes. I mean, once in a while it works out, but, but I mean, that's, that's really a difficult position for him to be in. And God promises him right out of the gate in chapter 1, I'm going to be with you, Joshua, in the same way that I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. You need to be strong and courageous, carefully obeying all the things that Moses has instructed you, not to the left or the right. That's the setting. In many ways, Joshua functions as a sequel, as a part two. A part two... To the first five books, the Torah, the Pentateuch, a sequel, a part two, to the story of the Exodus. In the Exodus, we see Israel, the covenant people of God, in slavery. And here in Joshua, we see God fulfilling his promises, being faithful, and giving the people land and rest. There's a lot of battles, and we'll see some of them today, but beyond the battlefields of Joshua, this book is far more interested in God's promises and the people finding their rest and finding a home, finding land. They've been wandering for a very long time. And so that's where our story picks up today in chapter 11, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this... Now, answering that question is going to be vitally important. But Jabin, the king of Hazor, he gets word... And when he gets word of whatever it is that he's hearing, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshva, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arba, south of Shinaroth, and in the low land, and in Naphthor on the west, verse 3, to the Canaanites in the east, and the west, and the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah, verse 4. And they came out with all their troops a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore. Picture that. With very many horses and chariots and all these kings joined their forces and came and camped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. It's an ominous setting. It seems that the Cinderella run that Israel's been on, putting a string together victory after victory, is about to come to an end right now. How, how are they going to defeat this alliance with so many people? Like, they can't even, like, I mean, they sent out a recon team. They can't even get, like, estimates. I mean, you've got to think they're in the, maybe, thousands of tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands. The closest estimate, basically all the sand on the seashore, that's basically what we're up against. But Jabin, he hears of this. There's something that provokes him to form this northern alliance, this coalition against Israel. What has he heard of? What he's heard of is very important because it is probably the only difference maker, nay, the only difference maker for Israel to have any shot at all going into chapter 11, into this northern campaign. Chapter 10 focuses on the southern campaign, chapter 11, the northern campaign. What has he heard of? What has Jabin gotten word about? Perhaps he's heard how back early on in the story, Israel miraculously crossed over the Jordan River in the rainiest, most wet season, when the waters would have been at their highest on dry ground. Maybe he, he's heard about how they defeated the people of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Perhaps he's heard of their victories over the people of Ai, Ai. Perhaps he's heard about the day in which the sun stood still. Yes, the day in which one man prays, God responds to Joshua's prayer, and he says, Son, stop. To provide enough light that Israel would thoroughly defeat their enemies in the south in chapter 10. Perhaps he's heard of all those things. No doubt, most specifically, I think, certainly to chapter 10, the most recent events, the day in which the sun stood still. He hears about this, got to take some action. And this alliance, this coalition that Jabin forms seems to be one, one alliance to do one thing, and that is utterly annihilate and defeat Israel. Oh, little Israel, how are they going to hold up? We don't know a lot about Jabin, the head of this alliance. His name is mentioned in Judges chapter 4. But it seems that that's most likely not the same person. Most commentators believe that Jabin is a dynastic name in the same way that Pharaoh was a dynastic name for the kings of Egypt. So Jabin would have been for the kings of Hazor. Hazor was the chief city of all of these mentioned. We see this in a few verses later. And you can actually go today and and see Hazor. Well, what remains of it, some 200 plus acres of ground. eight miles north of the Sea of Galilee. You can go today and actually see the the remains of that. But here is Jabin. He's formed this massive alliance, this massive coalition, this massive military to stop Israel. If you throw verse 4 up on the screen, you see there's a reference here to the very many horses. This is one of the first observations I made of the text. You might not think a lot about it because they're in the ancient Near East, so you'd expect them to have horses, just like you might expect us today to have, you know, M1 Abrams or Apaches or, or whatever, right? They've got a lot of horses, they've got a lot of chariots. Interesting to know, this is the first time in the story horses have even been mentioned. So, okay, it's the first time horses have ever been mentioned in the story. Now, I'm not trying to make something more than what this is, but I think it is, I think it's worth mentioning. Horses have not been mentioned, and couple that with the fact when you go back to Deuteronomy 17:6, you find this very peculiar command. In Deuteronomy 17, 6, the people of Israel are told not to multiply for themselves horses. Now, it's not that they can't have horses, okay? It's not that they can't use horses, even in military conflicts, but they can't, they're not supposed to multiply horses. They're not supposed to have an excess of horses, and what we see, I think, between the command in Deuteronomy 16, and here, the reference to the horses and chariots of this great canaanite northern alliance is a different military model they do things a little bit differently israel and everyone else they do things a little bit differently the canaanites are going to overwhelm you with their sheer force their horses their chariots their sheer number they're going to hit you and they're going to hit you hard and there's going to be so many people and it's going to be overwhelming The canaanites put their hope in their military might but the israelites are not to do that see the reason the israelites are given the command back in deuteronomy 17 16 is because their hope is not supposed to be in their military their hope is supposed to be in god that's the difference right so you say okay how in the world are we going to come against Jabin and his alliance in the hundreds of thousands, maybe? How are we going to beat them? Um, you're not going to beat them. You're, you're, not, you're not going to beat the northern alliance in chapter 11. You will lose. There's one way, one way alone. That's if God does what God's been doing throughout this whole story. So that's why why there's this contrast, right? Here's how the Canaanites do it. Here's how the world does it. Here's how the people of God do it. Right away, here's how the people of God do it. So at the end of the day, they say, well, how'd how'd you pull this off? Well, let me tell you, it was about our great military strategy we had. We were outnumbered like a million to one, but we pulled it off. We had the best generals. We had the best resources. We were just awesome. No, that's not the answer because that doesn't make God look good. That makes you look good. You know, some of us, when we face obstacles in our lives, we face different challenges. We don't depend upon God the way we should. We don't depend upon God first. We depend upon other things in our life or other people to rescue us from different situations. And I, uh, I'm guilty of this too. Let me ask yourself, right? When I come up against a challenge, an obstacle, I mean when the, you know what, hits the fan, and it's everywhere, and it's just, it's just the week from... What do you turn to first? Look, What do you turn to first? So, so the answer is, we should turn to God, right? God is the one that's going to get us through this challenge. God's the one that's going to get us through this week. God's the one that's going to get us through this whole mess that's been going on. That's the answer, but so many of us, that's not how we operate. When we face obstacles, when we face challenges, we depend not upon God, at least not at first. We depend upon other people, other things to try to meet those needs and that's not the way we're supposed to do it and that's not the way Israel's supposed to do it not that they can't have horses they can have horses they can use them in the military but they're not supposed to depend upon their military might why? because at the end of the day this whole story isn't even about Joshua about Israel it's about God doing what only God can do part of the problem I think we don't rely upon him that way is because our God is way too small too small I think by the end of this story, I hope you'll see him a little bit bigger than maybe when you walked in. Let's press on. Verse six. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I'll stop right there. Do not be afraid of them. Why does he say don't be afraid of them? Because they're probably afraid of them. You have no cell phone communication, no cell phones, right? And there's 200 terrorists outside this building with guns and they're gonna come in here in a few minutes. You'd be pretty terrified, right? That's kind of like the minds that these people are in. Like, I mean, yes, they have an army, but they're, they're nothing against these people. These people are afraid. Why does God tell them that? Because they're scared, they're scared. So we'll say, some people say, oh, well, I wouldn't have been afraid. If I had seen everything that God had done, How he parted the Jordan River, how he gave them victories at Jericho and Ai on the day the sun stood still in chapter 10 over the Southern Alliance. I wouldn't have been scared. These people are. They're afraid. They're afraid. And so God tells them, you don't have to be afraid. To give them that assurance, to give them that reassurance, I actually, I'll show you guys this, what I did right here in my Bible. Uh, here in chapter 11, verse 6, I underlined, do not be afraid, and then I drew an arrow all the way back over here to chapter 10, which that's the, the southern campaign, uh, chapter 10, verse 8, where the Lord once again says very basically the same thing, don't be afraid. Right. God just did this crazy miracle in chapter 10 and caused the sons to stand still and told them not to be afraid. You know, isn't that enough? No, it's not enough like they 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 need that reassurance right because our hearts are prone to wander from god we're prone to be forgetful even of the amazing things that god has done in our lives i imagine some of you there's been i imagine at least one time in your life where god has made himself so real maybe he's answered a prayer which it was just so convincing there was no other way that you we were going to get through the situation apart from him answering it then we forget right we're prone to forget, right? 9-11 happens, you remember it like every day for the first week, for the first month, and then what? You forget! You forget. These people forget too. These people need to be reminded too. They need that. And so God reminds them. That's I mean, that's one of the benefits. I talk about the importance of small group. Where we get to come together and weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. We get to come together and we get to remind. Our brothers and sisters in the faith of the faithfulness of the promises of God Right So God comes God tells him I got you Do not be afraid of them for tomorrow at this time. I will give over all of them slain to Israel You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire seven so joshua and all that's important more on that in a moment so joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of miram and fell upon them and the lord gave them into the hand of israel who struck them and chased them as far as great sidon and mesropath maim and eastward as far as the valley of Mespa. and they struck them until he left none remaining And Joshua did to them, just as the Lord said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at the time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms, 11, and they struck with the sword, all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. Hazor is one of three cities, it's burned to the ground. Anybody remember where the other two were? Close. Someone said, I think over here. Jericho and Ai. For the most part, the, the military strategy, and this is part of God's blessing to the people of Israel, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, is when they would conduct military operations against the people in Canaan, they'd go, they'd meet them on the battlefield, they'd engage, they'd defeat them, they'd wipe them all out, and they'd be like, Oh, sweet they just move into their houses. They take over their vineyards. It's part of God's blessing to the people. With three exceptions, Jericho, Ai, and Hazor, those three, burned to the ground. And and notice throughout this story, notice who's making this happen. Notice who's doing this. Going back to verse 8, And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. How are they pulling this off? They're not. God's making it happen. God is fighting their battles for them. Literally. But verse seven. That word all that's certainly significant. If you've been here throughout the previous sermons, you know that Israel had an issue at times when it came to unity. If I, I use one word, just to describe this verse, it's unity. You say, oh, okay, cool, everyone there who's supposed to be there. But that, that's easier said than done, right? Because sometimes you don't get along so well. I know that doesn't happen today in the local church. Everyone gets along in the local church. No one ever gets stepped on, no one ever gets their feelings hurt. That never happens. No one pouts, no one throws a fit. It's amazing sometimes. I see how much we are like these people. But unity had been a major issue. In fact, going back to the time of Moses, there had been an issue with the Transjordan tribes, the two and a half tribes. The two and a half tribes that are mentioned back in Joshua chapter 1. Verse 12 of Joshua 1. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. These were the trans-Jordan tribes. So trans-Jordan, literally, they were on the other side of the Jordan. They were on the the right side of the Jordan, the east side, if you're looking at the map. And they had told Moses, Moses, uh, we don't want to go and cross the Jordan. What do you mean you don't want to cross the Jordan? No, we're good right here. Like, we fought, we battled, we bled. Plus, it's really good for our animals, We're just cool to stay here. And there was this tension because Moses' concern was when the time came to cross the Jordan River, which that's how Joshua chapter 1 opens up. He knew when the time came that they might be kind of apathetic, right? Well, why do I need to help you move into your new house? Because I, I, I already got taken care of. Like, I'm all set, right? And there was this concern, and they made a promise. They said, no, no, we'll be there when the time comes. We see this picture of unity right here with the covenant people of God, and they struggled, not just with the tribal breakdowns, but even within the tribes. It wasn't just like, oh, well, we're from the tribe of Judah, so we're tight. Not necessarily, because even within the tribes, they would have clan divisions. And they butt heads, as many of us butt heads. Well, he was talking to that girl. Well, I wanted to talk to that girl. He got her. Fo- no, slow down there. Little things, right? Oh, well, they didn't invite me to this, or this happened, or the pastor said something that, uh, that I didn't like. Gosh, my mom called me last week. She lives out in Washington State. Another family left her church. I said, what happened this time? Oh, the pastor said something uh, that people didn't like. Was it biblical? Yep, all right, well, good for him. <laughs> or, or, yeah, my mom called me two months ago, and, oh, another family left her church. Oh, how come? Oh, they wanted to go to a cooler youth group. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? Right? If it's not one thing, it's another. Now, unity has is is certainly been a, a central part of this story throughout, and it is not just accidental, right? There's, there's a, I think, a very intentional reason. He says, you no, know, everyone who's supposed to be here, they're here. It's not, it's not just the people who actually have something to fight for, who have lands to fight for, but even the other people, right? The people who have had a really good week. They're here, too, to support everyone else, right? As the covenant people of God should support each other. And so they are supporting each other. And I think they're a great example to all of us in that regard. Verse 12, And all the cities of those kings, and all the cities of those kings, And all their kings, Joshua, captured and struck with the edge of the sword, devoting them to to destruction. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn except Hazar alone that Joshua burned and all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they did not leave any who breathed. Just as Moses, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. The focus of verses 12 to 15 is very much that the author takes our attention and has focused and zeroed it on on one really specific thing. And it's that Joshua is obeying and doing what he should do. He is the example to us of what right looks like. He is the example of what obeying God should look like. We see Moses... The Lord, He gives the commands. Joshua gets the orders. Joshua executes. Joshua obeys. Joshua does exactly what He's supposed to do. It's twice in verses 12 to 15, it reinforces that He is doing exactly what He's supposed to be doing. And it begs the question Are we? Are we? Joshua is this example of the law keeper and it raises the question, are we? Are we? It's interesting. Sometimes this topic will come up and people will say, well, that's law keeper. It's a little legalistic, Joe. It's a little legalistic. It's interesting because when people use that word and they say, that's a little legalistic. Uh, I think what's interesting is they usually use that in situations where they want to make exceptions for themselves when it comes to obeying God. It's legalistic. Okay, so are you saying that because you, you want to have sex and you're not married? Like, uh, like uh, yeah, you're just being legalistic. I remember going on a spring break trip to Mexico. So with my friends, I told this story a million times, some of you, but, but I think it serves to illustrate this point. And my one friend, he said... When my other friend and I confronted him and said dude you, you, you are acting in a way that you should not be acting as someone who claims to be a Christian You're not obeying God and he said guys listen. I obey God 51 weeks out of the year. I'd like to just have one week to myself But that's how that's how many of us are right? I'm gonna obey God I'm gonna do that 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 but ooh, I'm gonna I'm gonna that 5% that 2% I'm just gonna do what I want to do there I'm just gonna make it up as I go wrong that's that's not what Joshua does see Joshua is exemplified here because he is so careful to do everything that he's supposed to do and of course that's the opening story be strong and courageous now most people only know the catchphrase be strong and courageous because it's like I mean I've heard it in sermons before I hear it in like movie lines I see it in like I come in the life and there's probably going to be some plaque that says be strong and courageous I don't know, like, uh, who cares what the context is, right? We can be be strong and courageous to just anything we want. But when you look at what it says in chapter 1, he says, be strong and courageous in order to carefully obey all the things that Moses has commanded you. Be careful. You don't deviate to the right or the left. See, that's the issue of being strong and courageous because it's hard to obey God the way we should obey God. It is. People say, oh, you're being legalistic, asking, are we like Joshua in this regard? Are we keepers of the law the way we should? Not the way we want to, the way we should, the way God says to. So it's important we know what the Bible says. Don't believe me because you're hearing stuff come out of my mouth. Believe it because the Bible says it. If you don't see in the Bible, don't believe anything I say. And so being like the Bereans of Acts 17, no, people say, oh, Joe, you're being legalistic. Yeah, oh, you're giving me a hard time. I just want to have some fun. Uh, I'm going to argue it's not a matter of legalism, but rather it's a matter of love in this regard. You say love? How is it a matter of love? Have you not heard Jesus say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? Have you ever heard that? It's John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll obey me. Not obey me when it's convenient to you. Not obey me 95% of the time. Not obey me just so long as it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable or awkward. Joshua is exemplified. I'm sure he could have taken shortcuts here along the way. But he doesn't. So I'll, I'll, I'll put the question forth again. Are we like Joshua in this regard? Are we keepers of the law? Do we love Jesus by obedience or do we just have a cute little Instagram story or Facebook status or whatever it may be these days. I think that's the real question. Do we love him both in word and deed? You can say you love him. You say you love him all day long. May we be like Joshua in this regard. Verse 16: So Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev and the land of Goshen. In the lowland, these are summary statements, and the Arba and the hill country of Israel, and its lowland. Verse 17, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, and as far as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon, and below Mount Hermon, and he captured all their kings, and struck them, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. It's got to be hard to be Joshua. Blood, sweat, tears. I apologize to anyone who ever told you it was easy to be a Christian or it was going to be a life filled with cotton candy, butterflies, and lollipops because that simply is not the case. Well, we come to very much the apex of the story in the next series of verses and I would ask that you all buckle up because it might be a little bit of a bumpy ride. It will be. Some of you might not like what's about to come out of my mouth. It's a very hard text that we're going to deal with. But we don't just preach on the easy ones here. Anybody can do that. Here we go. Verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites. Now, remember, the Hivites are listed in this alliance back in chapter 11, 1 to 5. Okay? But the Hivites from the city of Gibeon, remember, in chapter 9, they lied their tails off to Joshua and the Israelites and even though they lied to enter into an alliance with them, they said, hey, we're, real, we're, we're from miles and miles away because we know that you can't enter into an alliance with anyone in the area because you've got to wipe all the people in the area out. So we're from really, really far away. If you don't believe us, just look at our tattered clothes. Just look at our really old food. When we left the house, it was really fresh and now it's really old. And of course, in chapter nine, the people are indicted because they did not consult God in this matter. And yet, even though the Gibeonites in chapter nine lied, entered into this agreement with the Israelites under false pretenses, Israel honors it. Israel honors the covenant with them. And so that's the reference there. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. They kill them all. Why? Hang on. Verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So with the exception of Rahab, with the exception of the Gibeonites, everybody else dies. Why? Why? They're not going to receive mercy. We'll work backwards to the verse. No mercy. Okay, why, why don't they get mercy? They don't get mercy because they're going to come against Israel in battle. They're going to come against Israel in battle. No mercy because they come against Israel in battle. And they come against Israel in battle because God hardens their hearts. In case there's any clarification, it says this is the Lord's doing. If you don't like the sound of that, I understand. Just stare at it for a second. Everyone with the exception of Rahab and with the exception of the Gibeonite people are going to come to the sword by Israel. And the reason is because there's no mercy given to them and there's no mercy because they come against them in battle and they come against them in battle because ultimately this was God's doing from the very beginning to harden their hearts. I don't like how that sounds. Maybe someone says, I know there's at least one person here who might not like the way that sounds. And so... What do you do when you come against really hard passages in the Bible? You have great Bible teachers come to help explain it. Do you not? There's a really great Bible teacher I'm sure some of you are very aware of. Anyone want to guess who he is? Well, yeah, he is pretty good. but Not who I was thinking of. Not who I was thinking of. There's a famous story in the bible in regards to the hardening of an individual's heart and that is of pharaoh during the time of moses and there is a great bible teacher who provides us a commentary on that story in the ninth chapter of the book of romans his name is paul the apostle paul throw up 914 please in chapter 9 of the book of romans The Apostle Paul is going to address this issue and all throughout in chapter 9 he is going to write in response to his readers knowing his readers are going to have a problem with what he's saying. Knowing his readers are going to have an objection. Knowing his readers are going to feel like there's injustice that's taking place. And once again, we're leaning on this story because Paul is going to comment on perhaps the most famous story of god hardening an individual's heart, that of Pharaoh. To help us deal with the tension at the end of chapter 11 of why everyone with the exception of Rahab and the Gibeonites get no mercy because God decided to harden their hearts because it was his doing so this is what he says Romans 9 14 what shall we say then is there injustice on God's part because I think at the core of this that's the struggle there's a tension right there's something in us and we don't like it when there's injustice I remember there was a time when I was younger and I got beat for something that I did not do. My mom spanked me. I'm, I'm using beat maybe more aggressively than I should. <laughs> <laughs> but I got beat, and I didn't do anything. And I tried, I tried. I was like, Mom, I didn't do anything. I didn't do it. It probably just worked out, because, you know, there was lots of times I didn't get beat that I should have, so I'm sure just cancel each other out. But... <laughs> But maybe you can relate to that, because I think at the core of us as just humans, like, we don't like injustice. We want things that are fair. We want want fairness. We want justice. And so when we get a sniff of something that doesn't smell the way it should to us, we we kind of jerk back almost instinctively or emotionally. And so Paul says, what shall we say then? Is justice? Is God being unfair? Is there injustice on his part? By no means. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends upon God who has mercy. Why why does Rahab get mercy? Why do the Gibeonites get mercy? They didn't deserve mercy in chapter 9. They lied their tails off to enter into the alliance to save their own hide. What makes them better than everyone else who gets the sword? And what's the difference between them? There's no difference between them. Rahab and the Gibeonites, they deserved, they deserved no mercy whatsoever. They didn't. So he says, no, there's there's no injustice. In fact, and he cites the story, direct quote. God says, I'm going to have mercy on whomever I have mercy. I'm going to have compassion on whomever I have compassion. Paul goes on to say, as you see right there, therefore it doesn't depend upon any human will or exertion. What does it depend upon? God. Right? And this is very, this Christocentric, God-exalting way of looking at the Bible. Right? From the very beginning of this chapter 11. How are we going to beat this amazing, powerful northern alliance? You're not going to beat them. There's no way you can beat them. The only way you win and you defeat Jabin and his alliance is if God does what only God can do. Why? Because that makes God look good. Not your generals and how smart they are. No, God. And God is all about himself because God is infinitely better than anything or anyone in the universe. Yes. So... He says in verse 17 of Romans 9, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, Pharaoh, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is all about himself. God is all about getting glory for himself. Verse 18, Romans 9. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. It doesn't seem fair. It's okay, you can think that, say it. it. doesn't seem fair. Better yet, how does God still find fault, you might say? If there's no difference between Rahab and the Gibeonites and everyone else who dies by the sword, right? No mercy, no quarter shown. They just die. Because God hardened their heart. It was his doing, and they don't receive mercy. And as a result, they come against Israel in battle. How how does he find fault with them if it was him that was hardening their heart the whole time, right? It almost makes it seem like this father who grabs his son, right? Throws him across the table. The the boy spills the milk, and then the dad gets mad at the boy because he spilled the milk, and then he just goes to town on him, right? Maybe that's how you feel, right? There is something that we don't like about this. Oh, we need a good Bible teacher right now. Next verse, 19. This is what Paul says. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Right? If he's hardening the heart, how does he find fault? If he hardened their hearts and then they're, boom, they're put to death, they come against Israel in battle, how is that their problem? His answer? He says, who can resist their will, right? His answer, verse 20. Just read that. It's a hard verse. It's a hard verse. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its smolder? Why have you made me like this? There's a potter. It's working on the wheel, right? And he thinks, how crazy would it be for the cup to lecture the potter and say, I don't want to be made like this. Sometimes I use it in terms of Legos, because I played with Legos growing up, and ladies, if you didn't play with Legos, think of something equivalent, maybe dolls. It doesn't matter. But how crazy and preposterous would it be if the little Lego guy said, I don't want to wear this hat. I don't want to ride the white horse. I want to ride the brown horse. Go back in the box, dude, right? Like I'm taking you back to Walmart. <laughs> preposterous, Right? It is like you—you you laugh because, like, how silly that would be, and that is the the, the really the punchline here for Paul. You gotta be kidding me! Like, shut your mouth and take a seat. Paraphrase. You're really gonna lecture back the king? Like, in other words, Paul says, "How dare you think that you?" are higher than God, how, how dare you presume to have the moral edge, to have the moral advantage, to be moral superior than God on this matter and lecture him on what is right and what is fair and what is not. See, part of the problem we deal with within our churches is much of the secular society infiltrates us, and so we think of ourselves way better than what we really should be thinking of ourselves and we have too small a view of God and too egocentric view of ourselves and it's just not proportional right we need to have a, a bigger view of God bigger view of God yeah how do they win this battle God right so think big things about God think small thoughts about man that's the goal of this story and in doing so I think it will help us work through hard passages like this one It makes me think of the story of Job. and Maybe you know it. The story of Job, and it's a little mouthy with God. Sometimes we get a little mouthy with God. Starts whining, and God says, now, Job, tell me, where were you when I spoke the universe into existence? Were you there, Job? Where were you right till the waters to come no further? I created the boundaries for them. When I opened up the heavenly storehouses of snow and I released them on the earth, where were you, Job? Paraphrase, right? You're going to lecture God, Paul says? You're going to lecture God about what he should and shouldn't do as if you are the superior moral being? How dare you? You need to take a little pill of humility, I think Paul would encourage all of us to. And yet, I know, I know there's a struggle. I know the struggle because I've read this passage before and I've I've gone home crying. John Piper, when he read this, he tells a story in this tulip series. He said, Romans 9 was like a tiger trying to devour people like myself. And he'd go back to his dorm and he'd cry his eyes out. He's like, God, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this. It's a very difficult text. It is. But what about that? Uh, once again, we come back to the issue of justice. What about that innocent person? Okay. All these people are dying, the Canaanites. They're all being put to the sword with the exception of Rahab and the Gibeonites. What about that innocent person there in that Canaanite group? What about the innocent person today? They they don't get the opportunity. They don't get the chance to turn. They don't get the chance to repent. Do they come under the wrath of God? Do they still go to hell? And my answer, absolutely not. The only problem is that person doesn't exist. There are no innocent people. These are not innocent people whom God hardened their hearts. Such a person doesn't exist today. Such a person doesn't exist then. You want to know the sort of people these, these were? Leviticus eighteen six to 23 gives a, a little flavor. I'll just, just a little list of who these people are. People who indulge engaging in incestuous relationships, in adultery, in homosexual activity, in bestiality, in child sacrifices. And oh, by the way, this went on for 400 years. You go back to the illustration I said, the father beats his son because he spills milk on the table, yet it was the father that threw him over. It says, I almost feel like that when we talk about God hardening these people's heart, like they had no chance whatsoever. The question is not, did God harden their heart? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. And I understand the text says Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened his heart. But when we look at Paul's commentary, it seems very clear he's thinking one way about this. The question is, think about Pharaoh. How did he harden Pharaoh's heart? I think this is the real question. As we struggle with the emotions inside of us, he sends Moses to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, remember what he says let my people go let them go and Pharaoh says no I will not let them go plague Moses comes again Pharaoh let my people go no I will not let them go plague and over and over he sends him again he sends Moses again Pharaoh this is madness let my people go and Pharaoh says no way I will not let them go you will not lecture me I am God. You see the arrogance and the pride of Pharaoh coming through those pages. And you think about God. He could have crushed Pharaoh like that in an instant, in a moment, They've done with the arrogance and pride of Pharaoh in his heart. And he doesn't. And rather, how does he harden Pharaoh's heart? with mercy, with patience, with long-suffering. He sends Moses over and over and over again, begging and pleading with Pharaoh, Pharaoh, this is madness, let them go. He could, have, he could have crushed Pharaoh like that. And he showcases his mercy, his forbearance, his long-suffering. Did he harden the people's hearts, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the people of the land? Yes. Yes, he did. But understand this, you go back to Genesis chapter 15, and you ever wonder, I don't know, we came across a sermon in Joshua about this, why did they have to spend 400 years in slavery? Why not 300? Why not 200? Why not 100? Why 400? Seems like an arbitrary number. Why 400? And the answer given back in Genesis chapter 15 is that because the sins of the Amorites were not yet complete. God's going to harden their hearts, and they will not receive mercy, and they will die by the edge of the israelite sword and god is perfectly just to do this And oh, by the way he is not only does he showcase his justice but he showcases his patience he allows this utter nonsense child sacrifice homosexuality bestiality he allows all these pagan things to go on for 400 years and they do not turn You've got to think, had they responded the way Rahab responded, they may have found mercy, and yet they don't. For 400 years, God is patient. And he is such a patient God, and God has been patient with many of us for a very long time. I don't think it's unfair for me to say, like, he is waiting for you. Like, he is waiting for you. Like, some of you, like, I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't. I think it's entirely possible there's at least one person here. You've been, you've been off the beaten trail. You have been running from God, doing your own thing, taking advantage of God's long-suffering, taking advantage of God's patience, of his forbearance, shaking your fist to God. The thing is, he's patient. He's patient, but his patience comes to an end at some point. And if and when it comes to an end and you are still in rebellion against the great king, you will face his wrath. You will face hell forever. Lesson, don't be like the Amorites. 400 years this nonsense occurred. Don't be like Pharaoh. Like Turn and repent and trust God. he's made one provision and that is through his son jesus who lived the life we could not live died the death we should have died who paid the price we could not afford to pay there is one provision for us like if we would just come to him to like stop running stop making excuses and just bow the knee to the king because at the end of the day Not only is there no difference between Rahab and the Gibeonites and everyone else who comes by the sword, there's no difference between us and them. Why do we get mercy? God! Right? Like, why? Like, why am I here today? Like, God has been so merciful and so patient with some of us today, all of us today. Oh, don't abuse it. Because at some point, it will come to an end. No, I I said at the beginning of this, I wanted you to walk out of here today with a larger view of God to see how there is one reason that they are able to overcome such a powerful enemy, God. And we see God very much as the central character. And we see Joshua as this example of obedience. And we see God, once again, the one who gives mercy to him be glory and honor forever. Pray with me, God, we love you and Lord, this is such a heavy text. This is a hard passage. And Lord, I thank you, God, that you give mercy to whom you give mercy. You show compassion to whom you show compassion. Because we're undeserving. Like, at the end of the day, like th- th- there's no difference between us and Rahab the prostitute. There's no difference between us and the lying, scheming Gibeonites. Like, there's no difference apart from you, Jesus Lord, I pray for those of us who, who are struggling with the, this passage. It's, it's hard, Lord. Help us, God. I pray that you would open our hearts, open up our minds, help us to understand these, these things and your ways. We need you, Jesus. We always do. I pray that we would walk out of here at the end of the day with a much bigger view of our God, the God who delivered the Israelite army against insurmountable odds, the God who fights for us. Thank you for fighting for us. In your name we pray. Amen. As the band comes up here, um, we're going to take communion. uh, And we do it a little bit differently at Lynchburg City Church. You don't have to be a covenant member at Lynchburg City Church to take communion. But you do have to be a Christian. You have to place your faith in Jesus, in Jesus alone, in Christ alone, for what he accomplished on the cross when he died for our sins. And I'd say, if you're not a Christian today, I'd ask you to abstain. I ask you, if you're not a Christian, you're not sure you're a Christian, to, to, to abstain from, from taking this. And for everyone else, I'd ask you to right now even examine your hearts. 1 Corinthians 11, I think, is, is, a, is a place we need to go to. Where many of the people in the Corinthian church were taking communion in, an, in a way they shouldn't have been taking communion in an unworthy manner. And God killed some of them. I say that because, not to scare you, but this is a very serious thing that we're doing. So, when you guys are ready, when you're ready, you need to sit here, you need to pray, you need to have conversation, whatever, you sit there, okay? No rush. But when you're ready, I'll be in the back with the bread and the juice to serve you and to pray for you. So, come when you're ready, guys.